That's okay. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Book Club with Caden Kelly. I, uh, yeah, I'm your motherfucking host, Caden Kelly. And uh, we're doing this on another software again, switching between softwares because uh, shit, I'm all out of, I'm all out of touch here. Losing, losing, uh, losing the familiarity with the whole system, but that's okay. We're, we're relearning everything. So welcome back. Welcome to another episode. Uh, today is Tuesday, December 20, uh, 19th, 2023. It's 835 AM. This is a good old throwback to our old 8 AM podcast schedule. Yeah. I was going to record last night, but I had some major van issues with my carpet cleaning vans, and so I wasn't able to do anything last night. And I was also rereading the paper that um, that I'll be that we're talking about today. Uh, also, it's Christmas, the week before Christmas, and we were doing gifts, getting getting our gifts ready. So just lots of lots of nonsense. But you know what I love so much. You know what I love so much about the live? If you want to see what I'm talking about, you can go to YouTube or Facebook or Twitch. Uh, I have this, the links. Well, they're on the little, they're on the, the stream. But you can find them by going to my blog, cadenkellysblog.wordpress.com to find the Twitch, the Facebook, and the YouTube. And you can see how lovely my backdrop is. You could see that I have boxes of merchandise and golf clubs and my music, my music, my sheet music um, and white walls and white doors. <laughs> but I got a new ca- I did get a new camera. So the ca- uh, everything looks really good, I think. And the light looks good. Shit. So you want to see all that? You can go to uh, the, any of the live places, Facebook, Twitch or YouTube, and you'll see. Uh, you can see what I'm talking about because it's great. It's all great. Yeah, we are live. We are streaming this live. We we uh, I I stopped doing that for a little bit, but now I'm doing it again because I want to be more engaging with with uh, audience members. Although most of my downloads happen after the episode is posted, I don't get much chatting in the anyway. I'm also not doing much in uh, by way of creating a, a base, a listening base. I should be doing more because I love doing this podcast and I'm here and I'm back. We're back after taking a little bit of a leave and I'm excited, not the medicine, but uh, a leave from the podcast. But I'm excited to uh, today to mix it up because, you know, in the past we always cover books. We talk about books that we're reading, but today we're not doing books. We're doing a paper that I read in philosophy about God, and I've said so many times how fascinated I am by the God conversation. I think I think philosophy and theology have become, well, not have become, but have always been my uh, most exciting points of learning, and they uh, so, so just so captivated by arguments for and against God. And in the philosophy class, we read several papers about. Uh, several arguments for the existence of God, but this one that we're that I want to talk about today was certainly one of my favorites from this entire semester of all of my classes, and I wrote a paper on it. And again, I, I've mentioned that I, I'm going to post my papers, my 
the papers that I like on my blog. I just haven't done it. I haven't done it. But I should. I, I could be and I should be. I have them all saved. I have the good ones saved. So this one, uh, this one came after all of the papers we read for the existence of God. This one is, uh, as the title suggests, problems with evil and uh, omnipotence and a little uh, one-on-one for those of you who don't know what omnipotence means and aren't willing to pull up a dictionary. Omnipotence is uh, all-powerful. It, it means able to pretty much do anything. But the question, I guess, that uh, that Mackie discusses is, does being able to do anything mean being able to do anything that uh, contradicts natural law and order? And the laws of logic can an omnipotent being uh, do things that contradict nature and laws. And my que- my question, and I wrote it somewhere on the essay, is, yeah, does God operate outside of the laws of logic and of natural law, or does he? I don't remember what I said the first one. Did he, does he operate within them or does he operate without them? Does he operate outside of these things? Does he exist or she or it? Does God exist outside of the laws of logic and natural law? And uh, spoiler alert, I don't think there is a God. I'm not convinced that there is. So I think that the, I think the question is entertaining to discuss because Uh, as the paper will suggest, and as we're going to talk about, there are lots of contradictions within this conversation, lots of contradictions regarding omnipotence and evil. So shit, let's get right into it. Huh? I don't, I, I, usually these bios include some kind of update on, on life and what I've been up to. Right. But I guess I'll say, yeah, it's, it's almost Christmas. It's almost Christmas. But it's also almost Hanukkah, or maybe it is already Hanukkah. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with other religious traditions around this time of year because I grew up in uh, Utah, in the the U.S. of A., and was raised a Mormon. And Christianity is the only religion that uh, is within my family. Uh, we don't have... Jews or Muslims or Scientologists or any other religious people, any other religions within my family, really just Christians and non-religious people. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not too familiar with the other traditions, but whatever your religious tradition is, I hope it's a good one. I hope you you've, uh, are able to practice it freely because that's uh, that's that's uh important to do even though i don't think that they're real that 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 even though i don't think christian christianity is real i think it's still important to spend quality time with people that you love at the uh at all of the time but at this time of year especially as uh you know as people get time off from work so anyway merry christmas or happy hanukkah or whatever your religious tradition is or uh, non-religious tradition is. I hope it's a good one. And shit, anything else? Yeah, my my work work is good, but the vans are broken. One of the vans broke completely, 
and the other one is just getting maintenance worked on. And I'm sure they're going to call me and I'm not going to answer with updates and, and everything because that's a, that's how I'm able to do the podcast right now is the van is unavailable. I can't even work if I wanted to. Anyway, not much to complain about. I love this camera and the colors, though. Seriously, I, I had this I had a nice DSLR camera. A, uh, a a Canon, you know, one of those nice Canon cameras set up for the last several years. And it, it's not meant to record video like this. And this little Elgato face cam is to stream exactly like this. And so it's auto focuses. It's got a great focus. I had to auto. Fo I had to manually focus the other camera. The color looks good. Anyway, very happy with this camera. All right. Enough of that. Evil and Omnipotence by J.L. Mackey from the University of Sydney. It's only right to pull up a little biography of J. J. L. Mackey bio. Okay, let's see. From this is from Wikipedia after a Google search. John Leslie Mackey, FBA, was an Australian philosopher. He made significant contributions to ethics, the philosophy of religion, metaphysics, and the philosophy of language. Mackey had influential views on meta-ethics, meta including his defense of moral skepticism and his sophisticated defense of atheism. I said defense, didn't I? Uh, Mackey had influential views on meta-ethics, including his defense of moral skepticism and his sophisticated defense of atheism and he wrote six books and he died he was born in 1917 he died in 1981 i wonder what his books are oh yeah his, he was a dad his he, he uh he was married in 1947 where are his books philosophical works oh books i should we should look into these Truth, Probability, and Paradox in 1973. The Cement of the Universe, A Study of Causation, 1980. Problems from Locke, 1978-6. Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, 1977. Hume's Moral Theory, 1980. And The Miracle of Theism, Arguments for and Against the Existence of God, 1982. Uh, that one sounds fascinating. I've actually, I think I've heard of that one before. So that's who we're reading from. J.L. Mackey in this paper. Uh, looks like uh, the reference at the top, it says it's from, or let's see. Yeah, it's from Mind, a journal called Mind, uh, volume 64, number 254, whatever. If you want the DOI, message me <laughs> I'm not trying to get sued you know what I mean okay so let's get into it so he uh, he has a little introduction here where he just he shows or explains what the point of the paper is he says here it can be shown not that religious beliefs lack rational support but that they are positively irrational that the several parts of the essential theological doctrine are inconsistent with one another. 
so that the theologian can maintain his position as a whole only by a much more extreme rejection of reason than in the former case. He must now be prepared to believe not merely what cannot be proved, but what can be disproved from other beliefs that he also holds. So yeah, it's fair to recognize the bias that our boy here, Mackie, is presenting. He's, he is a, seems like he's a pretty fervent atheist, arguing strongly for this position. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to read people's intentions a lot of the time that if he were directly against or opposed to theism, or in other words, described as an anti-theist, where he where he is you know reje- rejecting good evidence for theism in to support his own case for anti-theism it's it's tough to tell whether that's someone's intention or if their intention is has Alex O'Connor describes as an as a non-resistant non-believer where they are open to evidence and arguments for the existence of God they're not actively trying to not believe in God or what or in theism or in any supernatural power, but they're not convinced that the arguments for such a being or such a, such a creature is, is viable or reliable. So, uh, yeah, intentions I think are so important to address. Cause when I listen to, when you listen to people like Christopher Hitchens, where he, he fervently, uh, portrays himself as an anti-theist claiming that not only is God not real, but that it's immoral to believe in in a God or, uh, or, or to support such a God. And that's my, I guess it's a very shallow interpretation of what he does of of his work of Christopher Hitchens work, but you know, not uh, anyway, he, he is a proponent against God. He is actively trying to dissuade people to believe in God or was. And I don't, I don't, I, I, of course, as, as if I'd consider myself a non-resistant non-believer where I'm not actively trying to pull people away from God, but I am, I am willing to consider the evidence against God, just like I should be willing to convince the evidence for God. I feel like some people aren't willing to consider evidence for the existence of God. And uh, I guess in my own experience, after deconstructing from my Christian faith, I was convinced that in, in the arguments made by anti-theists like Hitchens, that it's not only is there no, is there no God, that, but that believing in a God is immoral and I should be, you should be, you should convince people to not believe in God, that it's a, that it's a better way to live. It's a more moral way to live. And I, I was explaining this to a friend that after taking this philosophy course, my mind, my, my mindset is shifted in a way that I still, I'm still not convinced that there is a God, but I'm not entirely convinced that belief in God is necessarily immoral or wrong, even though it, even though as Mackie right here is saying, even though that there might be evidence to, to, to demonstrate that not only is there no rational support or I'm sorry, that uh, 
as Mackey demonstrates that the um, religious beliefs are positively irrational, as he says. Not that the, not that religious beliefs lack support, but that they are positively irrational. That they are contradictory. Uh, the theist must now be prepared to believe not merely what cannot be proved, but what can be disproved from other beliefs that he also holds. And I only I only go on this tangent to say that. This paper is, you know, is biased to 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 attempt to deconstruct a uh, a theist position about God and His omnipotence, and it's absolutely worth consideration. That's that's the whole point. That's why that's that's why uh, that's why these debates are so so important to me. Is it is if God actually exists, wouldn't we want to know them? him or or her or it or they or whatever when do we want to know god if god existed and i've said before i don't know if i even said it on the podcast but if jesus christ actually resurrected from the dead then there's nothing else more important in the world there's nothing as important as knowing if or just the fact if jesus actually resurrected there's nothing more important to consider nothing uh so understanding or 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 discovering if that's actually true is absolutely worth our time. And while that may never be demonstrably or or de- demon- it can never be demonstrated, it can't be proven that Jesus actually resurrected at this point. And now the now the debate is were are the accounts of his resurrection viable and reliable and true? That's the that's the debate now. It's absolutely worth considering. And now if we want to discuss the nature of God, which is this paper about his omnipotence, we we, we have to be able to logically deduce if it even makes sense, if how we understand God even makes sense. It's absolutely worth our time and our consideration, especially if you're a religious person. Uh, And because in my personal experience, religious people tend to shy away from conversations against the existence of God because, well, it's scary to consider that what you believe so, so and I feel like I've said fervently so many times already, but what you believe so fervently might not be true is very, very alarming. It's very uncomfortable and scary, but it's only responsible. It's the, it's the responsible thing to do in my opinion. And, and same thing for non-religious people to, to live your life without considering these things is equally irresponsible. Um, not to say that, you know, you know, I know people in my life that just don't care enough to look into it. They're like, you know, just like I don't really care to look into other things like, I don't know, like politics is something that I wish I was more concerned about. But And some people dedicate their entire lives to politics. Not everyone is interested in the same things and some people would say that being invested in politics is the most important thing that they could do i'm sure someone has said that or will say that and um but i'm i would i would propose the argument that there's no more important claim than jesus christ rose from the dead because that's never happened before and it's never happened since unless but i know there's people that make other claims that that has happened but in any case uh, I'm I'm the type the type that's fascinated with the existence and the essence of God, whatever that God is. 
if they exist, I want to I want to understand them. And I think it's also fair to say lots of caveats right now. I apologize, but shit, I got so much going on in my brain. I've heard it I've heard it said that if God could be understood by the human mind, then that thing is not God. And this is kind of the uh what's the what's the is it the teleological argument? Let me see. That says that the greatest conceivable thing is God. Teleological argument for God. No, this is this is like intelligent design. So it's the ontological argument. Ontological argument. An ontological. Yeah. Uh, let me see. I'm pretty sure the ontological argument is like the greatest. Yes. One, it's possible that a maximally great being exists. Two, a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Yeah. I don't need to go through all these points. But that's the that's the point. And I oh, fuck, and I don't even remember why I brought that up, but um there we go. Fuck. What was that? I went off on another tangent. That uh that God Oh yeah, that if God could be conceived that it's not really God because God is greater than what humans are able to conceive because God created human beings, right? I mean, there's but there's a bunch of there's a bunch of philosophical arguments for the existence of God that cannot be easily refuted. I think can be, but not easily. Like this this ontological argument um, deduces that a maximally great being exists, and that that maximally great being is God. But then there's still debate as to what kind of God that is. Is it the Christian God? Is it the Islamic God? Is it Buddha? Is it Mother Nature? What is that maximally great being? And that's kind of what we're discussing right now is this, or what we might eventually discuss in this paper, evil and omnipotence. If this maximally great being is omnipotent, um, then it should logically follow or, or it should logically, yeah, follow certain rules and laws. And Mackey, attempts to show why why this can't be the case why an omnipotent god can't exist especially regarding the evil that exists in the world so let's move on let's get to the let's start getting into this he says later on in the introduction that in its simplest form the problem is this god is omnipotent god is wholly good or uh, omnibenevolent and yet evil exists there seems to be some contradiction between these three propositions so that if any two of them were true, the third would be false. But at the same time, all three are essential parts of the most of most theological positions. The theologian, it seems, at once must adhere and cannot consistently adhere to all three. The problem does not arise for theists, but I shall. Yeah, he says later on from these, it follows that a good omnipotent thing eliminates evil complete completely and then the propositions that a good omnipotent thing exists and that evil exists are incompatible and i think what's fair to say too is he he presupposes a lot of um 
theist positions and theist doctrine and claims about an omnipotent God or about God at all. I mean, there's some theists, I'm sure, that would say that God is not omnipotent and, or that cannot be omnipotent or cannot be omnibenevolent or cannot be omnipresent. Uh, yeah, I think it's omnipresent, like cannot be everywhere all at once at the same time. Oh, I don't think I have any tea left. Dang it. Yeah, I'm a tea drinker now. You know, I used to drink all that coffee, but ever since my colitis has gotten out of control, I've had to tone it down to tea. But I actually love tea. I get this chamomile. It's so good. I don't even need honey. I get these, the chamomile. chamomile um, what's the brand? I forget. Yogi? Yogi tea? I don't remember. So good. But I got this water. Mmm. All right. So, yes. So uh, he he presupposes many theological positions, but uh, and it's also it's worth considering that there are there are so many fucking positions and disagreements just among theologians, amongst Christians uh, specifically not. Well, yeah, I just mean to say that uh, even people that believe in the same God and go to the same church can have discrepancies about who God is and what his nature is or, or hers or its nature, right? <laughs> Cause we don't know who God is. It could be a, she, it could be a, it could be a, she, or it could be an, it, um, whatever. But, uh, even people who go to the same church and, uh, are, are under the same rooftop will have discrepancies on who, what the nature of God is. So we're presupposing certain qualities for the or certain positions for these theologians, for the uh, for for religious people. Um, but it seems that they're mostly generic things like that. God is omnipotent. That God is all powerful and can do anything. Right. This is I don't. That's not an uncommon position to hold for a theistic God. Okay, so he first considers adequate solutions to this uh, to what seems incompatible that there that there is evil in the world, that evil exists, and that God is all good. How can these how can these two things exist at the same time? And uh, some adequate solutions. It seems it's a pretty short it's a pretty short uh, summation, but but pretty much that. Evil doesn't necessarily exist. Um, that the way we understand evil doesn't really exist, and so therefore there is only goodness. And I think it, from like a from like a moral relativist, there. I, I mean, I I sometimes I still struggle with the idea that good and evil actually exist because I again I you know I I'm not faced with this quandary because I don't think that God exists. And so, therefore, I don't think that there is this objective goodness or objective evilness. I don't think they're. I don't think they're real. I think that they're. All, it's all relative, and there's so, there's so much debate amongst even philosophers uh, about this, about whether evil and goodness actually exist. That they exist objectively, regardless of the individual. And uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced that evil and goodness exist independent of 
of the observer of the individual. I think that they're mo I think it's actually all subjective and relative. And I'm reading I'm rereading Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind and it it kind of demonstrates how one event could be interpreted positively or negatively amongst certain groups. One of which that one one of which I read this this morning in his book uh where he surveys he surveys so many people in different parts, like parts in, uh, I think, Pennsylvania, rich and poor people, old and young in Pennsylvania, rich and poor, old and young in two different parts of Brazil. And, uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry, he's referring, he's referring to Tur Turiel's study about morality. Uh, yeah, I don't need to go down that, I don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but something like uh, something like an example that he used was is it okay for a woman to make dinner and eat dinner with her spouse and her spouse's older brother and most people in the united states in fact if not all of them would say that that's okay but that's a social taboo in in a place like india uh, because of social conventions and and uh, moral order, and the point is that it's not unanimous. We can we can argue about whether that's objectively or socially right or wrong, but the point is that it varies. That's the point I'm trying to make. I think that morality and even social conventions. I don't even think I think it's demonstrable that those things vary all across the world, and they can vary even within our own societies. An idea, our ideas of how the world. Sh function should function varies even within uh our own super close knit groups like our families and friends it's everyone's got their own opinion but uh that's why I'm, i love reading this book and I, I, I guess i just love uh the uh the concept of morality and where it comes from and why it exists and anyway so what he says, like an acceptable solution to this problem of why evil exists in a world where an all good and all powerful God uh, reigns is that evil doesn't actually exist. And if, you know, if that's the case, then yeah, then this is not a problem. Uh, but uh, he says, besides these half-hearted solutions, which explicitly reject, but implicitly assert one of the constituent propositions. There are definitely fallacious solutions which explicitly maintain all the constituent propositions but implicitly reject at least one of them in the course of the argument that explains why the explains away the problem of evil. And those constituent propositions are that evil what did he say? Uh that an a good omnipotent thing exists that evil exists and that these things are incompatible. Oh, yeah. For, uh, I'm sorry. I missed one. That a good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely, that the that the proposition of a good omnipotent thing exists and that evil exists are incompatible. OK, so here are fallacious solutions that um, theists propose to explain away the problem of evil. And he and he goes through why these things are fallacious and incompatible with reality and illogical. The first one is that God, I'm sorry, that good cannot exist without evil or that 
evil is necessary as a counterpart to good. He says, first, it sets a limit to what God can do, saying that God cannot create good without simultaneously creating evil. And this means either that God is not omnipotent or that there are some limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. And this is where I wrote in the margin, is God bound to the laws of logic or does God exist and operate outside the laws of logic? This is a, this is a term I've heard several times, laws of logic, um, that still are, it's, it's new to me. It's not, it's, I'm not entirely, uh, sure but it, the laws of logic are things like the excluded middle let me just the philosophy let me pull these up so you can because the, the, the google will always explain it better than i can yes there's the law of identity which is that everything is what it is everything is the same as itself there's the law of non-contradiction that nothing can both exist and not exist at the same time and in the same respect or no statement is both true and false. An example is like the apple is red and non-red. It cannot be it cannot be what it is and its counterpart. It is one or the other. That is the law of non-contradiction and the law of the excluded middle is that something either exists or does not exist, or every statement is either true or false. Like saying that the apple is not red is either true or false is the law of the excluded middle. And these things make sense, right? Like they're, they're the laws of logic. They're, they're how we, they're basic laws of how we understand our universe. Not everything is what it is, that it cannot be both um what it is and what it is not and that it is that every statement is either true or false a thing is either what it is or what it is not um very basic so can god be both evil and good or or can evil and good both exist at the same time and so this this first uh this first fallacious solution that good cannot exist without evil or that evil is a necessary counterpart to good is uh, inadequate. He says later on that the ontological requirement, and again, the, remember the ontological argument is that the greatest, well, ontological itself means something else. Hold on, let me clarify. Define ontological. That's something to do with the mind. Or not the mind. The nature of being. Yes. Relating to the branch of metaphysics. Dealing with the nature of being. So he says that the ontological requirement that non-redness should occur would be satisfied even if all the universe except for a minute speck were red. And if there were a corresponding requirement for evil as a counterpart to good, a minute dose of evil would presumably do. But theists are not usually willing to say in all contexts that all the evil that occurs is a minute and necessary dose. I said in the margin that if good needs to be contrasted with evil, only a minute dose of evil is sufficient. But we have far more than that. And, and uh, this makes sense. This makes sense in my head that if good cannot exist 
without evil and vice versa. And that makes sense even too. It's like the, it's like, you know, if everybody, like it's, it makes me think of syndrome from fucking the Incredibles. Uh, when he's, you know, he's like, I'm going to go into town. I'll make everybody super. And when everyone's super, no one will be, you know what I mean? If you feeling what I'm, you're picking up what I'm putting down. If every, if every, if there is only superheroes, then nobody's a superhero, right? If everybody is wealthy, then nobody is wealthy. If everybody is beautiful, then nobody is beautiful. The contrast needs to exist for these different, uh, entities or these different prints, uh, Ah, how would you how would you describe them qualities to exist so evil cannot exist without goodness because if everything was good then there would be no goodness there because there would be no evil to contrast it however the point here that he's making is if this is true and i think that it is true that you need the counterpart and god is in control of this whole system wouldn't it suffice that to make everything good and then have just the most minute speck of evil so that you can contrast the goodness with this one little minute speck have everything in the in the universe be good holy and unequivocally good except for the smallest of the smallest part of some of something else to to contrast it to so that everything can be good and um and we and we suffer the the smallest amount of evil possible and yet, in the world that we live in today, there is there is evil that we can quantify. There is there is harm and displeasure and pain that that people experience that you know that could be reduced. It could be reduced. Uh, I guess I can hear a theologian saying that. Well, we don't get to determine what the max amount of uh, or what the minimum amount of pain and and evil is. And I use pain as an example that comes later. I'll just say evil in general. We don't get to determine what the the minute speck of evil is. That's what God does. And perhaps the evil that is in the world is the amount of it is it is the minute speck that we're talking about. But I could say that one fewer cancer patient, one fewer, uh, one fewer random death or random tragedy is less suffering and pain. And if there are, if there are, I don't know if 20 people die from some terrorist attack, then wouldn't 19 still be less pain and suffering, but still have evil and goodness to contrast. And, and still, if, if 20 people, if, if 20 people died in a terrorist attack, and that was reduced to one person died in a terrorist attack. There is still a contrast between good and evil. And if God could reduce the amount of evil to that to the smallest number of the small, then why doesn't he? And like he says, most theists are not usually willing to say that all evil that occurs is a minute and necessary dose. So this answer, and we can move on. This answer that good cannot exist without evil and that evil is a necessary counterpart to good is, is a, to me, is a valid, uh, a valid response to the problem of evil, that God needs to allow some evil, but why doesn't he reduce it to its smallest component, if he could or if he can? And uh, that's what we're going to get into next. Uh, 
the second fallacious solution is evil is necessary as a means to good. So the first point was that good cannot exist without evil. And this point is that evil is necessary as a means to good. He says, if God has to introduce evil as a means to good, he must be subjected to at least some causal laws. Unless a favorable answer, he says later on, unless a favorable answer can be given to this question, the suggestion that evil is necessary as a means to good solves the problem of evil only by denying one of its constituent proponents or propositions, either that God is omnipotent or that omnipotent means what it says. Or did it, yeah. Uh, essentially what he means is that if evil is necessary for good, like if, if you, if God can't eliminate, uh, evil in order to create good, if he has to create good and evil, then it means is he, is it, is omnipotence what we think it means? Is God actually omnipotent? Is he bound by some kind of laws which would restrict his, uh, his, uh, if he's, and if he's bound to laws, the laws of logic or some kind of causal laws, is he actually omnipotent? And that's a, that's a short response. He must be subjected to at least some causal laws, which would restrict his omnipotence, right? The third, the universe is better with, with some evil in it than it could be if there were no evil. Uh, excuse me. The universe is better with some evil in it than it could be if there were no evil. And I add the, I add the, the caveat because as he demonstrates that this either happens by contrast or by progress from evil to good. Um, this solution may be developed in either of two ways. It may be supported by an aesthetic analogy, by the fact that contrasts heighten beauty, that in a musical work, for example, there may be uh, there may occur discords which somehow add to the beauty of the work as a whole. Or alternatively, it may be worked out in the connection with the notion of progress, that the best possible organization of the universe will not be static but progressive, that the gradual overcoming of evil by good is really a finer thing than would be the eternal, unchallenged supremacy of good. So is the universe better with some evil in it than if it would be if there was no evil. Um, this gets in, he gets into the weeds a little bit here with his, with his response to this problem. So I'm going to do my best to explain it. Uh, but I really, I really like the principle. He breaks goodness and evil down into different working of, of orders. Uh, and the best way to describe this is I, I took notes. So uh, Hume, David Hume proposes goodness or contrasts goodness and evil between pleasure and happiness with pain and misery. And Mackey, Mackey categorizes this as uh, first order good and first order evil, pleasure and happiness and pain and misery. Then he, then he goes into depth on... Um, 
second order goodness and evil. Um, he And then here he, he kind of presupposes that God is not really concerned. He's less concerned with a person's pleasure than he is concerned with a person's benevolence, whether a person behaves good uh, in this sense that they're, that they're, that they uh, are kind to their neighbor and kind to their parents and respectful and, uh, and, and, and exhibit courage in difficult situations. God is more concerned with these things than he is with whether a person uh, feels good all the time, right? Is, is kind of hedonistic or epicure, ep, epicurean. Yeah, I think it's epicurean that they seek pleasure out of their life, which is a goodness it could because that goodness is contrasted with um, pain and suffering, which is level uh, order one evil. So according to this, uh, according to this breakdown, God is more concerned with the person's benevolence, uh, which is order two goodness, which is contrasted by evil to uh, order two evil which is malevolence when a person is cruel or callous or cowardice. Um, so he says, that's a little brief, that's a brief summation of, of this argument for why this third solution is inadequate. And I'll remind you that the universe is better with some evil than if it could be with, with no evil. He says, just as good uh, order to goodness, which is, again is benevolence, just as benevolence is held to be the important kind of good, the kind of the kind that God is concerned to promote. So evil to which is malevolence. So evil. So malevolence will, by analogy, be the important kind of evil, the kind which God, if he were wholly good and omnipotent, would eliminate. He's saying that God, if God is concerned with more with benevolence then he would eliminate malevolence. He continues, and yet malevolence plainly exists. And indeed, most theists in other contexts stress its existence more than that of evil one, which is pain and suffering. That there is more pain and suffering, or sorry, that there's more malevolence in the world than pain and suffering. We should therefore state the problem of evil in terms of second order evil and against this form of the problem the present solution is useless. And against this form of the problem, the present solution is useless. Okay. And then this, and then this goes into, uh, this is the segue into the, the last solution to the problem of evil and omnipotence. But just to summarize and to do my best to summarize this, each order of good and evil, uh, influences the prior so benevolence and malevolence influence or directly contribute to a person's pain and suffering or pleasure and well-being right so you take this one step further take benevolence and malevolence one step further what influences those things and it is the fourth it is the fourth solution which is human free will so i'll say just to summarize the last point before we get into uh, free will the reason that this solution is fallacious or inadequate is because God is not God is not wholly um, concerned with the person's. Well, okay, this, uh, 
we're again we're presupposing that that God, this God, is not concerned with the person's pain and pleasure as much as he is with a person's benevolence and malevolence. Whether a person is doing good and, and behaving good compared to if they feel pleasure in their existence. Um So to take that one step further leads us into the fourth fallacious solution for the problem of evil, and that is evil is due to human free will. So he says, to explain why a holy good God gave men free will, although it would lead to some important evils, it must be argued that it is better on the whole that men should act freely and sometimes err than that they should be innocent automata acting automata, not automata, automata acting rightly in a wholly determined way. And I, there is a, I read an awesome paper on free will as well early in this semester uh, that is definitely worth uh, bringing up. And discussing in as an episode, um, he says, "Yeah, I'll read it again. I think it's I think it's crucial to explain why a holy good God gave men free will, although it would lead to some important evils, and must be it must be argued that it is better on the whole that the that men should act freely and sometimes err than that they should be innocent automata acting rightly." in a wholly determined way. The argument here about free will is that it is, it is better for men to act freely and make mistakes and, and commit evil. than it is better. That is a better universe than if uh, evil or if that God created innocent automata. And let me pull up the definition from automata, but it's basically like robots. It's basically robots. Automata. Moving mechanical device made in imitation of a human being. Yeah. A machine that performs a function according to a predetermined set of coded instructions. Especially one capable of a range of program responses. But, but this one's better. Used in similes and comparisons to refer to a person who seems to act in a mechanical or unemotional way. So it is better to create a person that can act freely and make mistakes and commit evil than it is to create innocent automata acting rightly in a wholly determined way. Um, so he says he, okay, so this gets into the problem of free will. Is it better to have humans that act freely and make mistakes than it is to make humans that cannot make mistakes that are just wholly good? Is what is better? What is better for the universe? He says, I think that this solution is unsatisfactory primarily because of the incoherence of the notion of freedom of the will, but I cannot discuss this topic adequately here, although some of my criticisms will touch upon it. So really, the, it goes into the whole discussion of, or, or no, he, t he only lightly touches on the discussion of free will as a response to this problem. And again, you know, the, the discussion of free will whether free will exists is uh, is a is a huge point of discussion, one that I hope to talk about in another podcast. Um, 
So he, he makes some brief criticisms here. He says, if God has made men such that their free choices, such that in their free choices, they sometimes prefer what is good and sometimes what is evil. Why could he have not made men such that they always freely choose good? Uh, if there is no logical impossibility in a man's freely choosing the good one, the good on one or on several occasions, there cannot be a logical impossibility in his freely choosing the good on every decision or every occasion. God was not then faced with the choice between making innocent automata and making beings who in acting freely would sometimes go wrong. There was open to him the obviously better possibility of making beings who would act freely but always go right. Clearly his failure to avail himself of this possibility is inconsistent with his being both omnipotent and wholly good or omnibenevolent. Benevolent. And my criticism to this is that uh, if you created something to perform a certain, fun a certain function, right? If you create humans, if I was God and I created humans to only create choose goodness to only choose good then um if there's nothing to contrast that goodness to then how could how how could you define that thing as good unless that god again exists in outside of these laws of logic and and can demonstrate that goodness is good and evil is evil without introducing evil without introducing things like suffering and malevolence um, it's a, it's a quandary here. I think that, I think that theists face that if we have free will and God is, allows us to, uh, act freely to make our decisions freely and, and allows us to sometimes commit evil, then we are, uh, we are, we are essentially slaves to we're, we're, if we were created without free will, we're slaves to our decision. We're slaves to goodness or to whatever that God has created us for. And if we have, uh, have free will, um, yeah, what's, we're not slaves in that sense. What's the, the thought is escaping me. Um, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll move on. I forget where I was going with that, but, but what he's saying here is if, if why couldn't God have created beings that always choose the right option? And I think that if that's the case, if, if, if humans always chose good, then there would be no evil. And if there was no evil, then how could there be good? You need the contrast. And he talks about the contrast a little bit more as we go on. Let me move on. He says only on this assumption can God escape the responsibility for men's actions for if he made them as they are, but did not determine their wrong choices, this can only be because the wrong choices are not determined by men as they are. But then if freedom is randomness, how can it be a char characteristic of will? And still more, how can it be the most important good? What value or merit would there be in free choices if these were random actions which were not determined by the nature of the agent? He says, I conclude that to make this solution plausible, two different senses of freedom must be confused. One sense, which will justify the view that freedom is a third order of good or more valuable than, more valuable than other goods would be without it. And in another sense, sheer randomness 
to prevent us from ascribing to God a decision to make men such that they may sometimes go wrong when he might have made them such that they would always freely go right. Yeah, he's going into the weeds here regarding uh, free will. But I, I love this section here that if he made us, if he made people as we are, um, and this is this is an, an apology to rid God of responsibility for men's evil actions, that God is not responsible. If God created us uh, to freely choose and we make mistakes, and, and this is an apologist's response that eliminates God from this responsibility of individuals, evil actions that he did not determine our wrong choices only because the wrong choices are not, are not determined by men. Um, which means that if freedom is randomness, then how can it be free will? If our decisions are then not determined and they are in fact random, then how can this be free? How can this be free will? And still more, how can it be the most important good? What value or merit would there be in free choices if these were random actions which were not determined by the nature of the agent? This is like determinism, that all of our choices were predetermined by a system of, of functions in the universe. That everything, and this is why I want to do, I want to go into more depth on the free will topic. You could spend, we could spend a whole hour talking about free will all by itself. And uh, with that being said, I'm going to move on. He says, for if men's wills are, f- are really free, this must mean that even God cannot control them. That is, that God is no longer omnipotent. It may be objected that God's gift of freedom to men does not mean that he cannot control their wills, but that he always refrains from controlling their wills. But why, we may ask, should God refrain from controlling evil wills? Why should he not leave men free to will rightly, but intervene when he sees them beginning to will wrongly? If God could do this, but he does not, and if he is wholly good, and the only explanation could be that even a wrong free act of will is not really evil, that its freedom is a value which outweighs its right is wrongness, excuse me, so that there were real, oh fuck, I keep fucking this up. Let me start the sentence over. It's a long sentence. Sorry. If God could do this, meaning if he could intervene uh, when someone wills wrongly, if God could do this but does not, and if he is wholly good, the only explanation could be that even a wrong free act of will is not really evil. That it's evil. I'm sorry. That it's freedom is a value which outweighs its wrongness so that there would be a loss of value if God took away the wrongness and the freedom together. But this is utterly opposed to what theists say about sin in other contexts. The present solution of the problem of evil then can be maintained only in the form that God has made them so free that he cannot control their wills. And I write in the margins that if he could, if he could intervene in stopping an evil free willed person and doesn't, then he isn't omnibenevolent. And I, I, I think that argument would hold. If you could, if you could prevent somebody from committing an evil act, if you knew that it was going to be evil, right? If you know everything, if you're omni, uh, uh, what is knowing everything? There's omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omnipresent. I think omnipresent is knowing everything. Anyway, if you knew everything, and you knew that somebody was going to commit an evil act, 
if you knew that was going to happen and you have the power to stop it and you don't, are you an evil person? And this kind of goes like, uh, this reminds me of my, my brother's situation right now where he's, he's stuck in a lease uh, where his residence has mold. And um, is he, is he, uh, is, is he morally responsible to uh, expose this renters organization that uh, because he's signed, you know, he's signed the contract and the contract says something about not allowing or, or, or not. It, it basically protects the, the renters from liability against mold against like against all stipulations. So he's just screwed. He can't get out of his lease. He can't hire a mold remediation company to do it. He'll get fined by the by the association. Like he's just utterly screwed. So is he is he obli- is is a person morally obligated to um, correct an evil doing if they have the power? And if God could prevent evil, a person from doing an evil thing, and he doesn't, is he either incapable of preventing the evil, or is he not actually all loving? Right? Or is he not all good? If he allows evil to happen, is he actually not all good? That's that's pretty much the point. Um, he goes more into a paradox, uh, this uh, omnipotence paradox. He says the question is not whether God originally determined the future actions of his creature, create of his creatures, but whether he can subsequently control their actions or whether he was able in the original creation to put things beyond his subsequent control. Even on determinist principles, the answers yes and no are equally irreconcilable with God's omnipotence. Yeah, so if God, if it's the question isn't whether he originally determined our actions, but whether he can now control our actions. Did he make us so free that we are now, he is now unable to influence or change or intervene in our decision making? Is he, is he bound by the laws of logic? And the laws of nature to prevent us from acting freely, uh, which would de- which would demonstrate that he is then not entirely omnipotent. It's a paradox. The paradox of he says later on the paradox of omnipotence can be avoided by putting God outside time, but the free will solution of the problem of evil cannot be saved in this way. And equally, it remains impossible to hold that an omnipotent God binds himself by ca- by causal. Or logical laws, and that's it. He has he gives a really brief conclusion, but nothing else worth worth mentioning. I think. So I want to know what you think about this conversation about Mackie and his 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 uh, deconstruction of evil and omnipotence. Um, I can hear like I can hear the Mormon uh, cadence still screaming inside about God needs to let people do evil things and be evil because um yeah because it's better to let it's better to have evil so that people can do good but this reminds me of uh of i listened to to that recent conversation between alex o'connor and ben shapiro and uh was it in that or was it in Sorry, I, I don't know. This is my van maintenance. I got to take this, but we're, we're done. I just want to say really quickly that is it better to have cancer so that we can create the goodness of cancer research and medicine? Or is it better to not have cancer? 
And that's essentially the problem of evil of evil to me in a, in a really, really brief nutshell. Is it better to have evil so that we can have goodness to combat evil? Or is it better to not have evil? Which means we don't have, we don't have the benevolence either. Is it better to have cancer so that we can have uh, cancer saving medicine? Is it better to have homeless people so that we can, so that we, we can create homeless shelters or is it better to not have homeless people? Right. It's a, it's an interesting question. And some, I can just hear some people, especially my religious, my old religious self saying that it's, it's better to have evil so that we can be good. It is a pretty, at least to me, it's a pretty ingrained principle in, in, theism and and theology that we need evil so that we need satan so that we can have jesus christ we can have a savior but is it better to have a devil so that we can have a savior or is it better to not have a devil and not need a savior you see what i mean what's better what's better for the universe what's better for us what's better for individuals and yeah uh, it's good to have the contrast, we, we need contrast in order to establish different qualities. We need evil in contrast to goodness, for goodness to exist. Otherwise, goodness cannot exist. But is having goodness an essential quality, um, or, or rather, does having goodness justify having evil or ha- letting allowing evil to exist? And... Uh, Again, I'll reiterate in my conclusion that I don't think that God exists to create this contrast or this quandary. I just think that it's a natural proponent of our universe, of of nature, and that we are creating every day these differences between goodness and evil uh, so that we can function in a society. I think that's it. I don't think there's anything more to it. I don't think that goodness or evil exist independent of of an individual like if no humans existed would there still be goodness and evil i don't think that that exists i don't think that goodness and evil exist outside of of humans or outside of the individual rather i don't think that evil and goodness exist objectively i think it's all subjective and uh so i i think that and i i'm sure that mackie feels somewhat similar and i i'm just asserting that based on based on what I know about his belief system, which is that he's an atheist. Um, I don't think, but he, but he does a really, at least this paper to me is so compelling for the problem of evil with God. It, it doesn't seem that it can be reconciled that God exists, that he's all powerful and all loving and yet allows evil to exist. It's a huge conundrum. And really, the only acceptable solution, as we pointed out at the beginning, is that evil doesn't actually exist. That it's just made up in our minds. That God actually exists, is all-powerful and loving, but evil does not actually exist. That all of these, how to do, how to describe them? Uh, that these principles, what kind of principles did he call them? Shit. What kind of principles do you call them? No, it came earlier. Fuck. Anyway.
Uh, I'm looking and I don't see it. God damn it. I mentioned it earlier. I just don't remember the exact term that he used. Oh, constituent propositions. Yes. These constituent propositions that. Oh, that, so it was too hard to find. Yeah, that that an all loving, all powerful God exists, that evil exists. And how do these things exist together? That's the problem. I want to know what you think. Um, I love to hear. I love to hear feedback. A lot of people, most of the people that listen to this have my phone number and text me. But if you don't and you want to share what you're I'll, I'll actually even be glad to read good responses. Uh, if you find my email in my blog, Caden Kelly's blog dot WordPress dot com about the existence of God and evil um, and this whole conversation. What do you think? Because I, I don't think it's like I, I think this is a compelling argument, but it's certain. None of these arguments are certainly set in stone. Like this is not the end all be all discussion of God and omnipotence. There's a lot of things that we brushed over, a lot of presuppositions that we inserted, like I mentioned, just to it, just to ha- make the to let the conversation roll. There's lots of things that we pro- that he probably presupposed that most theologians don't currently agree on. I mean, he died in the 80s. I think we wrote we read. This paper was wrote was written in 1955, so a lot has changed in the last 70 years. Uh, I oh Bailey, what's up Bailey? I assume you've read the God Delusion. I have not read the God Delusion. I've read so many excerpts from the God Delusion, but my problem is, or it's not even a problem. I I've just listened to so much Richard Dawkins that I feel like I've read the God Delusion. You know what I mean? I should. I should read it, but I also am aware that it's a it's a pretty biased book on a, a it's a pretty antithetical book to theism. I think it's I think it's kind of unfair. I think it's a kind of unfair uh, book to read, although I want to. I I, I love um, the dialogue and I love I love Richard Dawkins. I've heard criticism against him that he's a shitty philosopher, but he's an excellent scientist. And I think that's a fair analysis. When I listen to him in, in other conversations, I think he's like Christopher Hitchens. I think he's just a pretty stern anti-theist. And it's, it's, it, it's not disingenuous, but it's not fair for the dialogue, in my opinion. I think there's... There's some at some point you need to stop being open minded. Like I I use this analogy sometimes that we're not not a lot of people are still open minded that the earth is flat. Right. People aren't allowing those kinds of conversations to happen in full and full fledged discussion like we do with God or like we do with politics. People aren't discussing whether the earth is flat anymore. There are people that are still proposing that it is, but it's not it's not uh like open for debate, right? And I think that Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and even Sam Harris are like, this is not open for debate anymore, that God exists or that he doesn't exist. This is not open for debate. And that's how I feel the the God delusion comes across. And that's just my, that's my assumption based on what I've heard about it and what I've heard from Dawkins. So I haven't felt compelled to read it yet. I I really haven't, but I but I am I have it on my list. I'm more compelled to read these more open dialogue dialogues about God because I really don't think that this, like just like the the conversation of the flat Earth is pretty much closed. I don't think that this one is will ever be anywhere close to closed. 
I think that the the conversation around whether God actually exists will be had until something happens where fucking until the second coming. You know what I mean? Or or just like the destruction of all civilization. So I I can't imagine. I I can't. And this is kind of the reason we that these conversations are essential, I think, is if you could imagine something that would convince the majority of people that God exists or does not exist to the same degree that most people agree that the earth isn't flat anymore. And it's not even because I don't know that the earth isn't flat. I'm I'm trusting in the consensus of modern scientists and the uh the the wide s- scope of scientists it's not i don't even know if there's any reputable scientists that would argue that the earth isn't flat you know what i mean but if we could get that same level of consensus i don't know what it would take to get that same level of consensus that god either does or does not exist i think that there are really compelling ar- i actually think there's compelling arguments for the existence of god but uh but not well, I shouldn't say compelling, but there are interesting arguments that are not easily refuted. Again, they 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 can be refuted, but they're not easily refuted. Bailey says, by the way, this is Bailey plays a game. She streams live Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, and uh, her streaming community is one of the one of the most genuine streaming communities I've ever been a part of. So check her out on Twitch. Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, plays a game. She says, The innate and singular feature of this debate is the inability to completely prove one theory or another. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to, to uh, summarize it. And that's why I'm so interested in it. Is it's not, there's no consensus. Well, maybe that's not why I'm interested in it. But it is, uh, it is definitely why it's so compelling to me. Especially as a person that was so religious for my entire youth and into my early adulthood i i feel i feel duped a little bit and now i want to understand why i I felt duped and why other people are duped get duped not just about religion but about other things and i want to and i want to understand reality in the most authentic and real way as possible so yeah the uh the the and the most in, probably one of the most interesting components is that we can't we can't demonstrate that god does or does not exist we can only rationalize if he does or does not and i think mackie presents some compelling arguments for why an omnipotent god probably can't exist probably not certainly but probably can't either god exists and he's not omnipotent or he's not benevolent or that he is both of those things, but that the evil doesn't actually exist. That's the only. That's his acceptable solution for an all-powerful and all-loving God exists and evil actually exists. And I think that's. I think that's a compelling analysis. But I've gone. I've gone over a little bit too much. I'm gonna wrap it up here. I want to hear your thoughts. If you find my blog, Caden Kelly's blog, dot wordpress, dot com, you'll find my email. Send me an email, or you'll find all my social medias. You can send me a message there. I check them infrequently, but I check them. And if you've got a good response, I'll fucking read them on the podcast because I want to talk about them. And hopefully at some point I can get into the free will paper and talk about that here too because I think that is one of the most fascinating conversations too. In any news, that's it. 
Thanks for tuning in. We got an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, go have a great week. Again, enjoy your holidays, whatever holiday you celebrate, whatever it is, wherever you are in the world, enjoy it. Make it a peaceful one. Make it a rewarding one. Be kind to yourself, and we'll see you at the next one. Thank you.